Let's go to Romans 1. What do you say? Um, let me read you three verses out of Romans 1. Beginning at verse 18, I'll read you through verse 20. Um, here we go. Romans 1 at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that, that word endures forever. Guys, my, uh, my purpose in introducing some themes out of Romans chapter 1 is by no means apologetical. Now, if that word is a, a little bit new to you, that is apologetics, uh, let me explain what it is. It's, uh, most of you know what apologetics is, but apologetics is simply a defense of the faith. That is, against all of the, um, the uh, uh, objections and all the attacks of the unbelieving uh, world of philosophy, there is a school that has developed called apologetics, where uh, the attacks uh, against Christianity are defended, are defended against, and that's called apologetics. Now, um, I by no means intended my week with the high schoolers, where I preached this first, or my, my four sermons with you to be apologetical. That's not what this is about. This is not about a defense of Christianity. It's about a presentation of Christianity, and I hope you'll see that as we go. But uh, having said that, uh, by, there are a couple of things in Romans chapter 1 that are very apologetical in nature. For instance, you may recall that uh, three weeks ago, we looked at the wrath of God, which is mentioned in verse 18, Romans 1, 18, uh, for the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. That, that's what we looked at three weeks ago. We talked about um, God's wrath. And, uh, you know, it's very... It, it, people are pretty much taken aback by the whole idea that God is angry about anything. Well, the, the text states that he is, and that particular idea gets attacked from all corners. The idea of a God sending anyone to hell, that whole idea is, uh, is an offense. It's, it's just not something that, that people can stand. And so there, there is a, a defense that has arisen just around that one item. An apologetical defense. But there's another thing. There's something else in Romans 1 that is, um, that we, we're gonna look at this morning that is, um, one of those objections that people raise against Christianity ongoingly. In fact, it's, it's, uh, it's somewhat predictable. Uh, before we come to it, let me just tell you a story. Speaking of it being predictable, just kind of an autobiographical note. When Susie and I first became Christians, uh, we attended a church that placed a very high value on being able to share your faith. Just personal witnessing. That was, that was the thing of this church. And so to that end, they offered a course, a training course, 
where you learned how to share your faith. 14 weeks, 14 straight Thursday nights, you would come and be trained, and then you would be sent out to um, shopping malls, to fire stations, to personal homes, to, to share Christ with people. And so you would learn things like you would memorize scripture was a part of the training. You memorized an outline, which was a part of the training. Uh, you talked about illustrations and transitions. And But towards the end of the course, uh, there was about two weeks devoted to handling objections. In this 14 weeks of training, the last two weeks were devoted to helping you handle things that people would throw up uh, as a, well, what about this? That kind of thing. And the first one that you all, that we always got trained in, in terms of, uh, that was almost predictable. That is, that the non-Christian world seems to know this one. They have it in their pocket. They want to pull it out when, uh, when it's most advantageous. And, the, and, and perhaps some of you might have this. Some of you might have asked this. Some of you might still wonder about this. But it's addressed in Romans chapter 1, and we're going to look at it. But it's this question. What are you saying about the poor, innocent native in Africa who never heard about Jesus? Are you saying that that person goes to hell? Huh? Huh? Are you? Well, that issue, ladies and gentlemen, is addressed in spades. In Romans chapter 1, and I want to show it to you. But first of all, let me answer your question real quick. What happens to the poor, innocent native who never hears about Jesus? Here's the answer. Are you ready? That person goes straight to heaven. No problem. Taught here and elsewhere in the Bible. (laughs) Well, well, Dr. Young, (laughs) I didn't know you were that, that quite, okay, that broad-minded. <laughs> I didn't know you believed something like that. Well, of course I believe something like that. Um, um, that person doesn't need Jesus. What? What? I, I mean, <laughs> are you sure about that, Dr. Young? Well, of course I'm sure about that. You asked me, or the question poses this question. What about the poor, innocent native? Ladies and gentlemen, innocent people don't need a savior because they're innocent. The real question is not what happens to the poor innocent native in Africa or in Indonesia or in Germantown. The real question is, are there any innocent natives in Germantown or Africa or Indonesia? Paul addresses that in Romans chapter 1, and he says, no, there are no innocent anythings anywhere. That's what I want to show you. You're going to need your Bible open, so I hope you got that, and just lay it in your lap, because we'll be looking at it a lot. Guys, um, verses 19 through 32 Um are really just a commentary on verse 18. We looked at verse 18 a couple of three weeks ago and um, talked about the wrath of God then. And um, 
what what happens then in verses 19 through um, through the end of the chapter is a um, just an explanation of what he said in verse 18. But what we're going to look at this morning really is just verses 19 through 20. So I'd like to read those to you again. Just 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So, they're without excuse. Now, there's your answer to the question right there, folks. Let's, let's tease it out a bit. Verse 19 tells us that God has revealed certain things about himself to all mankind. He says, um, for what can be known about God is plain to them. That is, a limited body of information has been made known to all of mankind. Specifically, the things that have been made known are mentioned in verse 20. For his invisible attributes. Ah, which ones, Paul? Which invisible attributes do you have in mind? Well, number one, his eternal power. And number two, his divine nature. Those two things have been revealed to all of mankind. All of mankind, ladies and gentlemen, knows that there is a God on whom I am completely dependent and to whom I am utterly accountable. Now, what I do with that information is another story. What we're told in verse 18 is that there is a group of people who take that information and suppress it. Now, let me make this little side point here, guys. You can only suppress something that you have. And what they have is a limited body of information, particularly his eternal power and his divine nature. Now, what they have done with that information, we're told, is that they have taken that information and they have suppressed it. Now, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to suppress that information? Well, I can't, I can't read every motive, but let me suggest a couple. I think the primary reason that you want to suggest that, or you want to suppress that, is that you don't want to acknowledge the fact, or that this person would not want to acknowledge the fact that there is a God who exists on whom I am completely dependent and to whom I am utterly accountable. Because, you see, we love independence. And you're being, you're telling me that I'm completely dependent. I don't like that. You are also telling me that I'm not in control. And you know how we all love control. (laughs) Don't we? And because of my definition of freedom, my definition of freedom is the absence of all restraints 
that means that a God that you're telling me about has limited. There are certain boundaries. There are certain limits to my freedom. Now, that could be one reason that it's denied or suppressed. Another one could be pure fear. But actually, guys, that is really just another way of saying the same thing. Because what is it that I'm afraid of? I'm afraid that there is a God before whom I'm going to have to stand, on whom I am completely dependent, and to whom I am utterly accountable. Hey, guys, do you remember the the illustration that I used um, three weeks ago about the two natives that were walking through the jungle and they found the wristwatch? Remember that? Well, two natives are walking through a darkest part of Africa in a jungle, and and because of the reflection of the sun, they see something shimmering off to the side, so they go over and they pick up a wristwatch. And they begin to dialogue about the wristwatch. And they uh, figure out that, you know, they didn't make it, and then they turn it over and take the back off, and they see these these gears that are turning in there, and, and they wonder, you know, how did that happen? Or, you know, and then then the then all of a sudden... Something very scary strikes them. Wait a minute. Who made that? And whoever it is that made that, my, my, he's a whole lot smarter than we are. He's a whole lot more powerful than we are. And that's scary. Now, guys, stay with me. At that moment, the two natives face a crisis moment in their lives. What are we going to do with that information? We can go back to our village, show everybody what we found, tell everybody to get together and say, now listen, y'all. We're going to have to spend the rest of our lives finding out who it is that made this thing. We're going to have to appoint search parties. We're going to have to organize teams of investigation. But we're going to have to find whoever it is that made this thing. Or, you could take the watch and you could bury it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is who Paul is describing in verse 18 of Romans 1. People who take information that is clearly seen. Wait a minute, Jimmy. You you say clearly, clearly. Well, that's what the text says in verse 20. Have been clearly perceived. Well, how was it clearly perceived? Keep reading in the text. Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Do you see that, ladies and gentlemen? It's clearly seen via nature. Nature is God's first missionary. It's the, it's the stage. It's the, it's the theater on which the character of God is displayed. And looking at nature, I learned a couple of things about God. Number one, I learned of his eternal power. Number two, I learn of his divine nature. And at that moment, I got to make a decision. What am I going to do 
with that information. And there are those who decide that the best option is a deliberate suppression of truth that has been made available to them, clearly available by God via nature. And their decision is, stuff it. Stuff this information. And now you know what God is angry about. It is a just wrath directed against unrighteous suppression of the truth. There is, ladies and gentlemen, throughout mankind, a deep resistance to the truth. Which truth? This one. That there is a God on whom I am completely dependent and to whom I am utterly accountable. And therein, ladies and gentlemen, lies the basis for the universal indictment of the human race. God has made information available, and that information is suppressed suppressed. From, from from the very moment of creation. God has manifest himself clearly, and that information gets through. And every human being that has ever lived knows, according to this text, that there is a God who has eternal power and a divine nature. Now, let me, let me make two applications or lessons or explanations or whatever you want to call them, two things, and we'll pretty much wrap it up. First of all, the text makes one of the applications itself. In fact, if you'll notice in verse 20, it's interesting how the, the verse is punctuated. Notice it says, in the things that have been made, period. And then verse 20 closes with another sentence. It says, so here's the result. They are without excuse. No man, ladies and gentlemen, is ever going to be able to stand before God and say, if you'd only told me, if you'd only sent somebody to tell me that, no man can ever stand before God and plead ignorance. There is enough information in creation to establish the fact That there is a God who created and that that God is the moral governor of the universe. But that God is rejected. And he is rejected so that I can run my own life. Listen to me, my friend. Men are guilty 
Not because they haven't heard about Jesus because they live in a jungle. They are guilty because they refuse to yield and to submit to the information that they have. And instead of yielding to it, they hide it. They suppress it in unrighteousness. That's the first lesson, ladies and gentlemen. That's the answer to to your objection about the Christian gospel and message. Here's something else that you need to learn from those three verses. And it is this. There is not enough information given via creation to save you. That is, you cannot deduce from creation the love and the mercy of God. You cannot look at nature and reason from that, that the one who made that is full of mercy and grace. Nature will not show you the way of salvation. That comes only via what theologians like to call special revelation. And the apex of that special revelation is, of course, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ arrived on planet Earth so that he could explain to us what the Father is like. Did you know that? I want you to see that, guys. I just Because th- that's a profound point. So if you've still got your Bibles and you can find the Gospel of John real quick. It's just a couple of chapters back. You're in Romans. Go past Acts and then to the first book of John, the first chapter of John. The Gospel of John. I want you to see this. It's verse 18. It's pretty simple. John says in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, a reference to Christ, he has made him known. This, this Jesus that showed up on planet earth, indeed he has a redemptive purpose. But another one of his purposes is to make sure that we have enough information about this God that we can adore him. Is God merciful? Yes. How do I know that? Jesus told me. Will God forgive wickedness? Yes, he will. How can I be sure? Because Jesus told me. Is God long-suffering? Yes. How do you know that? Because Jesus showed me. It's that information that comes through the mouth of and the work of Jesus and the person of Jesus Christ that I find out, oh, I find out more than his divine nature and his eternal power. Guys, the problem for the non-Christian world is not academic it's not, it's not intellectual. It's not philosophical. The problem is a moral problem. 
And I'm not talking about, oh, they tell lies to their teacher. It's a moral problem in that he takes truth and he suppresses it. It's not, it's not that he doesn't know God. It's just that the God that he is, is a God that he doesn't like. There's, there's plenty of evidence. But man doesn't like the evidence, or he doesn't like what the evidence says. He doesn't like what the evidence, the, the, the portrait of God that it draws. And so he takes the truth and suppresses it in his own soul in the hopes that he can run from it. You know, listen, John, just as an aside, one of my things that I have kind of worked on in the 35 years of my ministry is the whole idea of creation versus evolution. Why do you think? Why do you think that the non-Christian world is so desperate to defend evolution? Can you see it now? In fact, some of their leading proponents say it's not because we have evidence for this, but the alternative to evolution, this is a quote, is unthinkable. We've got to have evolution because this is unthinkable. The idea that there is a God on whom I am completely dependent and a God to whom I am utterly accountable, unthinkable. Guys, I, I told you this story about recently. I told it on a Wednesday night and then I told it here, gosh, about maybe eight weeks ago. I got to tell it again because it's just the, just the best illustration I have in my limited uh, repertoire. It's the story, you'll remember it, uh, about David Frost and uh, the late night talk show host. Now, you know, most of you don't even remember the name David Frost. David Frost preceded Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson preceded David Letterman. And David Letterman, I think, preceded Conan O'Brien or something like that. Some kind of line like that. But David Frost was back in the, you know, he was one of the earliest, perhaps the earliest, of the late night talk show hosts. But one night, his guest was uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare. Uh, the famous atheist, the one who brought into being the American Association of Atheism, uh, the one who was, whose son, Bill Murray, um, ultimately became a Christian and wrote a book about it. I've got it in my library. Um, but she was murdered by one of her own employees. It's, a, it's an ugly, ugly tale. But, but anyway, this night on, on, um, uh, on this David Frost show, Madeline Murray O'Hare was the guest, and so they entered into a dialogue about whether or not God existed. Kind of a tete-a-tete about, does God exist? No, he doesn't. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. No, he doesn't. That kind of thing. And so finally, David Frost had had enough. And he said, all right, uh, let's, let's, let's let the audience weigh in on this. You know, settle it the uh, old American way. Let's let, the, uh, let's let the audience vote. So he turns to the audience and he says, uh, all right, you folks out there, how many of you believe that God exists, that there is a God? And every hand in the audience went up. And the man who originally told this story said this, which I thought was an incisive idea on his part. This is not original with me. Um, this man 
who originally told this story, said, Madeline Murray O'Hare, at that moment, missed her chance. Because what she should have done at that moment, with all these hands up in the audience, what she should have done is turn to the same audience and say, okay, can I conduct my own poll? Here's my poll. Here's my question to you. How many of you believe in a God of Romans 1? How many of you believe that the God who is, is the God on whom you are completely dependent and to whom you are utterly accountable? How many of you believe in that God? You can, of course, imagine the result. Guys, it is only the new birth, regeneration, being born again. It is only that sovereign work of God's spirit that allows us to believe in this God. A God to whom we owe everything in response to his grace and mercy on display in Christ Jesus. In response to what the Father gave. We give back. And the only thing that made this hard heart softer to beat and Love and adoration towards that God and His provision in Christ is a work that we call regeneration, the rebirth, where the Holy Spirit of God spiritually exchanges my heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. Guys, the gospel is good news, it's not good advice. It doesn't come in and say, now here you, here's what you need to do. You need to do this, 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 and this. And then that'll make you acceptable to God. No, it's not, it's not advice. It's news. It's a proclamation. It's an announcement about what God has done in Christ for us. It's good news. But it is also needed news. Because the whole world lies guilty. Guilty before God. You see, my friend, the question is not, do you believe in God? The question is, do you believe in that God? Because that's the only one that exists. Our Father, those of us who do believe, we do so because of great mercy and grace. We do so not because we're smarter or better or in any way have been able to sort things out. Um, We do it because you have, from eternity past, decided to exchange our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh. You have, O God, had mercy on us. 
And because of that great redemptive work, we were able to see our sin and your provision for our sin in Christ Jesus. And so we stand here, all of us, every Christian in this room stands here as a trophy, a trophy of grace. And we glory in what you have done to us and for us. Our salvation, O God, is not one iota to our merit. Our salvation is just another evidence of the great God of glory that you are. Might our recognition of what you have done in our lives lead to a greater response of giving in sacrifice so that you might be glorified. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name.